child's minds. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for another day to bring glory to you, Father. That's what this is about. That's why you left us here after salvation to bring glory to you and your son's good name. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be here this morning. And we pray also for those in this world that are still lost without hope that they be humbled and receive saving faith. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work to cancel out that debt against us. May we never become familiar with it, Father. May each and every day begin with that memory, with that understanding that nothing compares to it, Father. We're just so blessed. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 26, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. On Thursday, uh, the Spirit bookended the message with the same topic of this week's blog up here in the board. This week's blog was or is titled Fear and Faith. And I got a lot of feedback, actually. Uh, someone said they, they read it four times because it was, it's heavy. It's, uh, it requires a lot of stitching together, um, a lot of concentration. And I love that because it really forces you to evaluate, um, you know, how you're doing. Have you been really being faithful to the messages from the pulpit? Uh, have you been reading your Bible? Um, all those kind of good things, you know, have, you know, are those things there and present uh, in, your, in your walk with him. Um, and a, a challenging blog like that one is going to be a sort of litmus test. And so hopefully you read it. If not, Definitely read it. Uh, be like that one person who had no fear, no pun intended, of reading it four times and then emailing me and saying, you know, I'm still a little confused. Like I, there's some connective tissue that I'm missing here. And uh, I responded readily. I always respond, especially when it comes to the, to the blogs. Um, I always respond. If you send me an email about the blog, you're like, hey, you know, could I have a little more clarity on this or that? Because I'm not a perfect writer. I'm certainly not a perfect communicator. So what are you going to, you know, just ask. If there's something you're missing, just send me an email. I'll, I will respond. It might take a day or something like that. But I will respond, I promise. And so hopefully you read that blog because it really was a bit of a capstone of our messages as of late. Fear and faith. Uh, we can summarize the Spirit's messages today on this topic as fear of the Lord is tantamount. Tantamount is just a fancy name. You know, it just means pretty much the same thing. Not quite synonymous, but close enough. You know, 
Fear of the Lord is tantamount to faith in the Lord. Fear of the Lord is basically the same, within the same sphere, if you would, as faith in the Lord. Um, furthermore, on that, we might also say that we fear those we have or who have power over us. We fear those, and I might even insert the word perceived power, because we might have wrongly appropriated our fear to um, someone or something that we perceive has power over us, which is, you know, dangerous territory. But nonetheless, we also might say that we fear those who have power over us. Here's the principle from last time. The origins of fear, um, if we believe others have power over us, we fear them, and when they issue commands, we obey. Likewise, if we believe God has power over us, we fear him and obey his commands. Again, that's the origins of fear. If we believe others have power over us, we fear them, and when they issue commands, we obey. Likewise, if we believe God has power over us, we fear him, and we obey him and his commands. So fear is a result of perceived power. And it, if you look at it that way, um, it, we're really describing a sort of a virtual tug of war between two powers in our lives, right? It's just sort of, if we oversimplify the whole thing, it's really, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Our secretary in the back looks like a Bedouin monk or something. She's wearing a hoodie. Sorry. <laughs> it's making me laugh. Anyways, where was I before I get distracted? Oh, it's a virtual tug of war uh, between two powers in our lives. Uh, and again, if we oversimplify it, that's really what it comes down to. Do we perceive that others have power over us? Or do we believe that God ultimately has power over us? And depending on that, where we're on that continuum, right, um, that dictates where our fear is. If we allow Holy Scripture to do its job in us, we have omnipotence on our side. That's the beauty of it. If we read our Bibles, this is why, you know, I know I'm on a broken record. But if we read our Bibles, the power and omnipotence of God is right there in front of you. And it's convincing if you're willing to read it, if you take the time to read it. So again, if we have that in us, if we have Holy Scripture, uh, if we allow it to do its job in us, which begins with reading it in the first place, we have omnipotence on our side and we know it and we have faith in it. And we fear God as a result. And really that means we win. We win. When you have omnipotence on your side, you win. Here's an example. Go to Romans. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, didn't, I did this, but I meant go. I just was like, ah, oh, go. Get it? <laughs> go to Romans 8.31. Romans 8.31.
Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question, right? I mean, if the omnipotent being, if, if God, the omnipotent, the all-powerful one is on your side, who can possibly stand against you? Right? It's almost like, you know, that picture of the schoolyard where a bully's picking on a, a little kid or something like that, and the father of the little kid steps between the bully and the, the son. Right? Uh, what's the, the, now the, the little kid's like, yeah, what are you going to do now? It's the same idea. If God is for us, if God stands in our stead to protect us from everything, from any harm, any other so-called power, who can stand against us? No one. Up here on the board. For real. If God is for us, who can be against us? Also translated, since God is for us. That's why it's like a rhetorical question. You know, since God's for us, I mean, come on. We find our sense of security in those we believe are the most powerful. Tis why we tend to submit out of fear to perceived power, regardless if it's godly or not even. It's this pattern in us, right? If, if we believe someone or something has power over us, we tend to submit to that power. It's a, it's a type of fear, fear-based, if you would. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's godly or not. That's our nature. If we righteously fear God's power, though, then we are ever secure. And I always think, every time I read that sentence, I think of Psalm 23, right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. doesn't matter if you're, you know, um, blessing me or cursing me. Uh, or, di you know, disciplining me. It doesn't matter. The whole thing, just knowing that you are in power, I derive comfort from that. Um, again, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You see, that's power, right? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, that all started with the point on the board. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
or since God is for us, who can be against us? Who is going to separate us from him? No one. And is, if, you, if you read your Bible, you see that over and over and over again. And you start perceiving the powers, this tug of war, the powers in your life. They start leaning completely towards God, which is the reality, but with the vestiges of sin and with the way we've been trained up before salvation, it takes a while. We call that sanctification. And so, uh, since God is for us, who can be against us? Keep reading your Bible, the more you'll be convinced of that very thing. Here's the final sentence from this week's blog to help drive this point home up here on the board on the topic of fear and faith. And this is me writing, of course. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that a person who doesn't fear the Lord cannot possibly have genuine faith in him. And the greater the fear, the greater the faith. We have our greatest faith in the things we fear the most. Again, I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I do know what the Bible says, right? A person who doesn't fear the Lord cannot possibly have genuine faith in him. If there's no basis... What does the Bible say multiple times? I'm thinking of uh, Psalms right now, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to know anything about this life here you've been called to live, there has to be the fear of God. If you're going to have any faith in anything, the starting point, the starting line is fearing God. And I, I think I wrote this, I think I wrote this in the blog, um, one of the great deceptions in this world right now is that God's not scary. God's not to be feared, right? It's all la, 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 la. It's all love and it's all this, you know, it's all this fluffy BS. La, 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 la. And Jesus is this scrawny little white dude with blue eyes who hung on a cross. Uh-uh, not my Lord. Not my Lord. Didn't look like that, didn't act like that, don't disrespect him like that. God deserves, in every respect of the word, to be wholly feared. And I say that with a W-H. Wholly feared. And that's not preached anymore. It is here. But as a general rule in Christianity, it's almost like uh, it's not, you know, PC. It's not politically correct to scare people. And that's not my tactic. I'm not going to scare anybody into salvation. or scare, That's not the point at all. But God's scary. Amen? He's omnipotent. He could go like this. You're done. Done. End of story. You got cancer. Now you don't. You're done. Now you're back. Whoa, wait, what? Right? No, for real. He just, think about that. He, he just took people off the earth. Right? No longer walked. No, he's just gone. Done. Everybody's like, what? What happened? Gone. He can do anything he wants. And the Bible also says he's not mocked. Uh-oh. That he's a perfect father. 
And a perfect father disciplines his own. So, yeah, I think one of the great uh, perversions right now in Christianity is that God is not to be feared. That he's just some optional guy over here that's begging you to believe in his son. Please, I love you, please. (laughs) No, that's not the Lord God that I know. Not from this book. It's not the one that Jesus taught. By all accounts, Jesus could actually be called a judgment preacher. He had no problem expounding upon the fear of his father. The righteous fear of God. Hmm. Anyways, as a practical examination of this topic of fear and faith this past week, the Spirit had us contemplate, you know, the little things. What do you do when no one's looking? (laughs) Right? What do you do? Do you think God's not watching? I don't know. What do you do? So he had us contemplate as a practical examination. Instead of just me giving you the theology like I just gave you, not just to give you the theology, but what about the practical application of these things? Right? Because the Bible says the proof's in the pudding. You can say you have all the faith, you know, faith to the nine, so to speak. But unless you actually bear that fruit, your faith is really a farce. You can say all you want. And so the Spirit said, what about all the little things? Up here on the board, there was our conclusion. It's the little things that comprise the majority of living. It's the little things that comprise the majority of living. Is it not? Uh Every so often there's a, a big thing that happens. Everybody wants to point to it and make a big issue out of it and, you know, brag about it and, and maybe it is really good. And maybe that's between you and the Lord and you're satisfied with that. And it is kind of a big deal. You know, whatever. But it's all the little things in between. I mean, so the big deal takes what? 30 minutes of your week? I don't know. An hour of your month? I don't know. Whatever that big thing was. You know, maybe you went to a park and started evangelizing some people for, I don't know. 45 minutes one, one day a month or something like that. Okay, that's a pretty cool thing. That's like a, that's like a big, I would, I would start categorizing that as a big thing. But okay, so there's like a lot of extra time in between that big thing every month. It's called your life. And it's filled with a bunch of little things. And so the Spirit had us sort of sit on that for a while. And the conclusion was, it's the little things that comprise the majority of living. So last time, uh, we read the parable of the unjust servant, which really is a story about little things, um, where the representative little thing, if you would, the object in the parable was wealth. You know. So I ask you, before we even press on, 
Is wealth a big deal or a little one? Ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself, is wealth a big deal or a little deal? I mean, how you answer that is wholly dependent upon where you place your faith, which implies the principle we've been developing lately, fear. In other words, do you fear not having it? Is that an issue for you? Do you fear not having it? Remember, fear and faith, this is the same thing, essentially, right? So how you answer that question, is wealth a big deal or a little deal, right? Is a phone going off in the middle of class? Is that a big deal or a little deal? You not remembering to shut off your phone before class, is that a big deal or a little deal? It's a little deal, but it can become a big deal. Right? But not today. <laughs> right? So how you answer that question, is wealth a big deal or a little deal? It really depends on where your faith is. Do you put your faith in wealth? If you do, it means you fear it. Some kind of fear is, is resident there. Well, I fear not having it. I grew up poor. I need to have it. I'm tired of being poor. Or, you know, I grew up rich, and I fear not having that lifestyle anymore. I don't know what I'd do. Somehow fear is in the middle of that thing. And so there's an applied faith that's carried along with it. And so you say, what about wealth? The Bible says money and wealth is a little thing. Some of you are like, really? Yeah, really. It's just, it's just a, um, a thing. It's just, it's just a thing. And in many ways, it's a curse. So the Bible says that money and wealth is a little thing. And that is, of course, according to Jesus. Hence his parable. It's not according to Ed Collins. It's, a, it's according to Jesus. So let's jump in for the sake of time to where Jesus makes a statement about little things. Go to Luke 16, verse 10. Jesus um, makes a point about all these little things. This is in the middle of the parable. Right? If you're interested, I would say read. Go back to 16, verse 1. We read it on Thursday. Luke 16, 10. So money, wealth was on the table. How the, you know, the servant managed the master's wealth. That kind of a thing. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. In the very little thing, the object was money, right? If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Again, the point on the board, we need to apply this to our lives. It's the little things that comprise the majority of living. I mean, who doesn't, all right, who doesn't spend money every day? 
And in that way, you know, whether you, you're the, the so-called breadwinner, if you're, even if you're a homemaker or whatever, somehow you're involved in the making of money, right, because you're a team. Uh, who doesn't, you know, make money every day? Who doesn't, you know I'm getting at, right? Somehow money is always part of our day. That's the point. And so that little thing is always like right in front of us. Well, it's the little things that comprise the majority of living. Look at verse 13, though. And again, this is Jesus. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. I mean, I'm sure if I, if I just said publicly, wealth and money is a little thing. Don't you think that the average person in America would ridicule me? They'd be like, must be one of those religious zealots, right? He walks around with, you know, camel hair and eats locusts and stuff. You know, he must be one of those people. Let's just, let's just mock him. Because he's weird. He's one of those Bible-thumping weirdo guys. He doesn't get it. Money's everything. Money's where it's at. I can do so much with money. Right? They ridiculed him. Why? Because they were lovers of money. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And it's not that money's an abomination. What was their problem? Verse 14. They were lovers of money. And as a result, they ridiculed him. Does that make sense? Yeah. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The love of money is an abomination. That's a very strong word. It's not like, well, don't do that. It's an abomination. That's the same word that's used for uh, homosexuality. It's an abomination. Isn't the, you know, quote-unquote, almighty dollar uh, what's exalted in our society? Isn't it? I mean, isn't having a lot of money essentially the root cause for so much idolatry in this country? This is stated very clearly up here on the board, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. And again, there's nothing wrong with having money. It's what you think of the money. It's how you use it, how you spend it, how you become a steward of it. Right? 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see how the love of money takes a person away from faith in God? Again, this is what is expected. It's literally what is expected. If you love money, it's expected that you wander away from faith. 
This wandering away from the faith to our own detriment is what is an abomination in the sight of God. That's the point. Again, look at verse 15. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, I was thinking about this. You know, and I'm always on the plate here, guys. Right? I'm always on the plate. Uh, I think about my own life. I think about my own problems, my own weaknesses. If money and wealth is a source of idolatry in your life, you have this problem that the Spirit's pointing out right now. Okay? If money and wealth is a source of idolatry, if, you, if, you, if your affection for it is, you know, out of bounds, let's say, if it's not a, a heart of gratitude that you give to the Lord, in other words, for just having it, but rather it reflects somehow on you, right? You have a problem. How do you know if you have this problem? It's actually easy. I'll give you maybe the, 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 the most prominent one, and then I'll follow it up with it's a, a second one. It's still a problem, but not as prominent that I can see. So here's how you can tell if you have this problem. Is your self-esteem in any way whatsoever, somehow tied to your wealth? And is your self-esteem in any way, shape, or form somehow tied to your wealth? Do you like the idea that others around you, friends and family even, think more highly of you because you have it? Do you like that idea? Or on the flip side, are you jealous of people who have it? Maybe you don't have it, but you're jealous of those that do. Or maybe you have some, but somebody has more, and you're jealous of them, that you don't have more. Remember, the love of money does not imply one actually has it. It only implies that a person wants it or has an inordinate affection for it you know, ties their self-esteem to it, even. The other way you know you have a problem with it is if you push aside your relationship with Christ just to obtain it. And the practical side of that is, you know, you're not reading your Bible the way you ought to. You're not reading the blogs. You're not going to church faithfully. You're not even supporting the church faithfully etc., etc., right? If you push aside your relationship with Christ to obtain that wealth, you also have a problem. You might say, I don't love it. I just, you know, I just want to have my goodies and I want to be able to go out to eat whenever I feel like it. I want to be able to buy stuff whenever I feel like it. You know, I don't, I don't assign my self-esteem to it. I, I, don't, I don't do that thing. But I like the goodies, Right? And I like the goodies so much that I don't have any time left for God. That's the other problem that um, I think is prevalent in life. 
So Jesus' parable of the unjust servant is a great illustration of how the, quote, little things matter. What do you do? You're all stewards of time, energy, money, whatever, talents, you know, you know what I'm saying. You're all stewards. You've been given a life, and you're given time to manage that life. You're all managers, right? And that's the parable, by the way. The master's the Lord. You've been given things of value to manage. How do you manage that, those things of value in time? Are you a good steward of your time and your treasure? Or are you not? Right? The wealth in the example is merely an illustration of the principle. Something meant to highlight an underlying issue. Because if, it, you know, if you didn't choose to use money, it could just as easily have been a parable about power or something that you perceive of value, right? As in, you know, let's focus on power just for a moment, just to get away from the money thing, because I can already, if I look down, right, and I use my periphery, I see a lot of twitching. For real, I, I see a lot of, look at John right now. I'm such a lover of money. Pat, help me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? Money, I'm telling you, America, money in America is just, whew, you pluck that thing and it's like a hornet's nest. Anyways, if it weren't money, let's just transition to some other thing. Maybe it's power. As in, how do you respond to being given power over others? For example, if you're a parent, are you authoritative, which is a good thing, or are you authoritarian, which is a bad thing? Authoritative or authoritarian? If you're a husband, do you lord over your wife like a controlling tyrant? If you're a leader in any realm of life, do you focus on your responsibilities towards caring for your subordinates? Or do you focus on exerting power and having them serve you? Didn't Jesus himself say that it's better to serve than to be served? Isn't there something in the Bible that mentions that? Let's see. Go to Matthew 20, 20. Matthew 20, 20. This, this scene actually grosses me out a little bit, but we're not going to focus on the mother. We're going to focus on the principle that Jesus brings out as a result. Matthew 20, verse 20. So let's just suppose it's power, you know. The mother of the sons, Matthew 20, 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she kissed him for some, or she asked him for something, and she said to her, uh, he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Oh, lady, really? I can't take it. Right? And look at how 
reverent she was at, acting. Do you see? Do you know what I'm getting at? I don't know. The whole thing makes me nauseous, I guess. Jesus answered in 22, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. So the two sons like, Yeah, we're able. <laughs> he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, the other, you know, the other apostles, right, they're probably like, this, the gall, right? When the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. In other words, get your head straight on this topic. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God exists right now, as in the spiritual sense, right? You have to be a servant. It's great, and I say this with complete humility. It's a great thing that's going on right now. This servant is serving you, and that's a great thing. I don't derive any self-esteem from it, but you know what I'm saying, right? That's a great thing, to serve another person when I could be doing something else. That's a great thing. That's what Jesus said. That's what you want. That's how you want to even lead. Remember, I, remember I, whenever I've taught on leadership principles, I always put the leader, I have an upside-down pyramid. Most people, you know, in corporate world, it's this way. The president's at the top, then there's, the, you know, the VPs, and, you know, it goes like this, right? And everybody's like, oh, I go like this, upside down. To be a good leader, you're at the bottom. You are supporting everybody else. You're serving everyone else. You're trying to make everyone under you great. Make them good. Make them better. Feed them more. That's a true leader. Not one who just wants all the accolades and the, you know, other people serving him or her. And this is Jesus. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom, as a ransom for many. I believe that without a firm grasp on Matthew 20, uh, 26 to 28, a person will never be a good leader. They'll never be a good leader. Jesus is the greatest leader in history, and his words summarize his thoughts on leadership. Simply put up here in the board, Matthew 23, 11 to 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You want to be a great leader? Then serve. Leaders, I don't know what the, what the attraction is to being in charge. It just comes with a lot more work. Do you understand? If you have a leader's heart, you realize that it comes with a lot of baggage. Right? And the proverbial 
doesn't roll downhill, it rolls uphill, as they say. Right? It rolls uphill. Whatever is not caught, what do you think happens? I'm responsible for this ministry. Period. Whatever is not caught by you or the leadership team or the other servants, guess whose shoulders it lands on? Mine. Mine. Every single time without fail. That's my job. It's, okay, let me give you a good example. So, people are people, right? What do you think falls through the cracks? The fun stuff? The good stuff? Nope. The refuse. The sewage. The stuff nobody wants to touch. Oh! Oh! Right? I don't want to do that. So what do I end up with? A bunch of ants in my office. Because nobody wants to clean the floor. Crumbs everywhere. I come in the next time, there's a bunch of ants. Then I got a crazy deacon who sprays the hell out of the place. Now I can't even breathe. Right? Why? Who would end up on? Me. Who had to make the phone call? Me. Do you understand what I'm getting at? The leader gets all the garbage. And that's the right way to do it. Because the leader is the servant. At the end of the day, a person who takes responsibility says, I take responsibility for all of it, including all the dirty stuff that comes through all the cracks. <laughs> right? Anyways, I digress a little bit. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What's the key to good leadership? Drum roll. Humility. Humility. That's the key to good leadership. It's not bravado. It's not chest beating. It's not how much money you make. It's not how many people you have in your organization under you. It's none of that garbage. And by the way, I have experience with all the above. Big deal. It's just a test. And most Americans fail it. Most people cannot handle leadership. Whether you're a leader or a follower, though, it's the little things that fill our lives, not the so-called big things. Right? It's, the, it's not the big promotion. I just got promoted. Senior vice president. What a real servant says, I just got promoted. I have a lot more work to do. I'm going to be catching a lot more garbage. <laughs> right? That's what makes you decide whether or not you want that promotion. It's whether or not you're willing to take on all the extra garbage. It's not the title. If you're, if you're hung up on titles, you're a jackass to start with. You probably shouldn't be there in the first place. You follow? why I have to be very careful to put anybody behind this pulpit. It's the little things, not the big things. Again, it's not just money or wealth that we need to think about here. It's all the little things that occupy our daily lives. Up here on the board, 
That's called integrity. Integrity to the little things. God's the person who watches how we do all the little things, not just the so-called big stuff. All right? So keep that in mind. Yep, we've got time. We're going to change gears a little bit. All of that was, you know, fallout, if you would, or came from the first four verses of Proverbs 17. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 1, and we'll dig in a little bit further. We're going to actually get into a new topic this morning. We can't get deep. We don't have time. Proverbs 17, verse 1. How's the temperature in here, by the way? It's all right? When I got here, it was a little chilly. It was like 65. Is that right? Yeah? Any smokers? Because they're usually like... <laughs> Anyways, Proverbs 17.1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Verse 3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. And then we've been perched on verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. So here are the two key principles from verse 4 before we move on up here on the board. A person's nature is revealed by the type of advice he accepts. In other words, what sphere are they abiding in? And then second, up here on the board, we have confidence in the things we fear the most. Okay? As the Spirit pointed out earlier, we uh, fear those who have power over us. God, of course, is our greatest example. He is omnipotent. So not fearing him is really asinine, but we do it. He has the power to bless and to curse, which is why we ought to fear him implicitly. Um, and I was thinking about that, just to put some closure on this. With God, his judgment is perfect. Think about that. With God, his judgment is perfect, and as the Holy Bible teaches us, he is never mocked. So, when we think of God's judgment, we must also remember his omnipotence to carry through with it. Okay? Go to uh, Romans 1.18. We'll look at an example of what the Spirit's just trying to put a bow on here. Remember, the reason that this came up is that Verse 4 talks about the evildoer fearing man more than God. That's why he wants advice from man, because he fears man's opinion of him. He fears that man might know something he doesn't. He fears, he fears man, right? But look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What was the problem? 
they apparently didn't fear God. They knew him and didn't fear him enough to obey. And so what happens? God is not mocked. The wrath of God. They knew better. They were without excuse. Still, not enough fear, apparently. So they get the wrath of God. The point, again, on the board, though, is that we have confidence in the things we fear the most. Okay? We fear those who have perceived power over us. Stated differently, we have confidence that they can exert that power over us for better or for worse. Now, when you and I read Romans 1.18, hopefully, understanding the power of God, we say, that's for worse. And I believe it. I believe those people, those sons of disobedience, are under the wrath of God. I believe it. And I believe that they're without excuse. And I believe that God is perfectly righteous, sending them to the lake of fire. I believe that. I believe in the wrath of God. As much as I believe in the goodness of God, to be completely frank. Because I believe he's perfectly just and righteous in every activity. So the truth is we have confidence in a lot of things, good or bad. And up here on the board, concentrate. The origins of fear again. It's on the premise of perceived power that our fear develops. Right? If we, in other words, I gave you the lion, I think, and the great white shark on Thursday. If you didn't think they had any power over you, you wouldn't fear them. You'd be like, but it's a lion. And it's a great white shark. I mean, come on. It's not a flea. So, again, it's on the premise of perceived power that our fear develops. Do you, do you believe that God, your creator, has the power to sentence you for all of eternity to the lake of fire. Do you believe that? Because the Bible says that you have no excuse not to believe it. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says you have no excuse not to believe it. So when you choose not to believe it, when you choose against God, when you essentially say he really doesn't have the power to sentence me to hell, then you can dismiss it. You have no fear of him. That's the point. That's how power and fear uh, come together. That's how fear develops. Again, the generic principle, though, up here on the board, we have confidence in the things we fear the most. All right, this brings us back to the instigating passage. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Proverbs 17, verse 4. Were you got, weren't you there already? Oh, where were you? Where you been all this time? Jeez, man. Hey, just, it was my bad. Because, like, literally in my notes, it says in big blue capital, go to. That means to ask you to go there. But apparently... I'm a jackass, too. Right? Proverbs 17, 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Again, an, evil, an evildoer fears man more than God. That's what we learned. And that's the underlying principle. Likewise, a doer of the word, 
a la James 1.22, the opposite of an evildoer, fears God more than man. Okay, so if you were to, we're not going to go there, but if you were to read James 1.22, a doer of the word is the opposite of an evildoer. All right, evildoer versus doer of the word. That person fears God more than man. All right, let's press on. How much time we got? Yeah, we're doing good. Verse 5. Whoever mocks, and in the original language, it could be translated deride or express contempt for or ridicule. That's the nature of that word mocks. Okay? Whoever mocks, derides, express contempt for, uh, ridicules, the poor. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. I think maybe next to the definition for ugly in the, in the dictionary, there should be a picture of this person. Next to the definition for ugly in the dictionary, there should be a picture of this person. The person who mocks the poor? I mean, that's yuck, right? I mean, really? Really? Hold your thumb there. Go to Proverbs 14, verse 20. Proverbs 14, verse 20. Just hold your thumb. Proverbs 14, verse 20. <clears throat> the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Is that not an indictment? Is that not gross? I don't know. To me, it's disgusting. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises, and this, a little more color on that word, scorn or treat with contempt. Whoever despises, scorns, treats with contempt. His neighbor is a sinner. But blessed is he who is generous to the poor. How about Proverbs 14.31? Just forward a little bit. Thirty-one, whoever oppresses, and that word, a little more color on that word, oppress, wrong, extort, even. This, see, it gets even grosser, doesn't it? Rich people that extort poor people have to be of the lowest order of human beings. I mean, they're already poor, and you're extorting more out of them? How do you live with yourself? I don't understand that. And apparently neither does, well, the Lord understands it, but certainly doesn't favor it. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Okay, go back to Proverbs 17.5. Just a little more color on what's going on here, on the very mind of Christ. Verse 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He was glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Okay. <laughs> this is a picture of that person. In my notes, I have that in quotes. Get it? It's that person. You know what I mean by that? This is a picture of that person. That one that's like, oh, you're that person? 
Really? That's you? You mock the poor? You're that big of a low-life credent that you mock the poor? This is how you get off? This is how you, what, build yourself up? You grotesque little worm. This is you? You're that person? You are fugly. That's way beyond ugly, by the way, for you older people. Right? No, it's disgusting. I, I, I cannot, it's that person, right? Ugh. And if you've ever been poor, or even perceived as poor, or having less even, whatever the gradient is, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that person. It's the person who turns their nose down at others simply because of social status obtained through wealth. That little thing, remember that little thing that God says doesn't even matter? If, if anything else, it proves that you're a jackass if you're a bad steward of those little things. That, it's that person, right? But I think also the second part of this verse's first phrase is quite telling. Look at it, verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor, what? Insults his maker. Oh, so now it gets interesting. We saw the same statement in Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Why is this insulting to God? It's because God is the perfect chooser. God chooses perfectly. And if he chooses a life for someone, guess what? It was perfectly chosen. If they're poor, they were supposed to be poor. They can bring maximum glory to God, being poor. Because God knows that snobby jackass isn't. You follow? This person can bring maximum glory to God, and God chose them for that role. It's an honor. I'm not saying just because you have money it's dishonorable. That's not the point. I hope you're following. God chooses everyone's life. Ask yourselves, who chose your life and where you'd live and how you grew up and even how something as little as wealth would be added to your account? God. That's who God did. In fact, God chooses everything. He ordains everything. And he's never once made a mistake. Never once made a mistake. So, if God knows best, what say you of the person who makes an issue out of his choices? for the sake of evil. What say you of that person? What say you of the person who mocks the poor? I, can't, I have a hard time even saying that because I feel like punching something. No, I like, you know what I'm getting at? I hate bullies to start with. Like, generally speaking, I hate bullies. And, and money and wealth is like a bully's rod, right, in this world, in America. It, it, somehow people feel they have the, um, the right to begin bullying other people because they have money. It's like a bully stick. Do you know what I'm saying? 
because they have money and the other person doesn't. Everything, I'm better than you, right? I can, I can look down at you. I can whatever. It doesn't matter that I'm a crooked son of a bitch, right? That got my money by stealing and railroading people and backstabbing people and everything else. It doesn't matter. I got it now. It doesn't matter if I could give a crap about Jesus Christ. I got it now, baby. That is so grotesque. Anybody else want to just fight somebody? Right? Doesn't that get you so angry? I hate it so bad. I hate bullies to start with. I mean, they're, they're lower than low, in my opinion. Right? If you're going to pick a fight, at least pick a fight with someone bigger than you. Do you follow what I'm getting at? You feel in a fight, to, you know, you feel like scrapping? Pick the biggest person that can at least defend themselves. Not the little one. What does that say about you? What does that say about your constitution? Your character? What does it say about you? To mock the poor? To kick somebody when they're already so-called down when they're really not because, you know, it's a blessing for me. But you know what I'm saying. Think of the mindset. What does that say? Mock the poor? Isn't it insulting to God because God is the one who chose to make that person poor? Just consider what Jesus had to say about this mockery that has existed throughout human history. And pay particularly close attention to how he chose to open up the very precious passage we now know as the Beatitudes. Go to Luke 6.20. And I'll, I'll begin looking for a spot to close. Go to Luke 6.20. This is what we call the Beatitudes, okay? Look at how Jesus opens up the Beatitudes. And you tell me what he thinks about the rich and the poor. You tell me. Verse 20, Luke 6, 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are what? Poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. He turns the tables now. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. I think Jesus had something to say on this topic. What say you? He just lambasted those people who mocked the poor. And he encouraged the poor to stand firm, not to grow weary, to bring glory to God in that process. 
Do you see the contrast that Jesus sets up between the poor and the rich? And also between those who mock the poor? Do you think that Jesus had a personal problem with this kind of a evil? A per, I mean, a personal problem. Like, you think I'm getting all feisty up here. I'm just an under-shepherd. Imagine what Jesus would think. I mean, he was flipping over tables over people making money on the, off the poor. Right? Hated it. Despised it. Called them hypocrites. Said, woe to you. So yeah, Jesus had a personal problem with this kind of a person, with this evil, a really big problem. So let's just step back for a moment. Consider the fact that the Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. Okay? I mean, we just read the Beatitudes. It's right there, right? I mean, boom! There's the mind of Christ. This is Jesus' own words. It's kind of hard to sidestep that. But it's bigger than that. The whole Bible is the very mind of Christ. In other words, we don't just, quote, hear from Jesus Christ when we read the red letters in the Bible. I mean, that's not even close to being the fullness of his voice in Holy Scripture. The truth is that the entire Bible is the mind of Christ. The whole Bible. Aren't we? We're in Proverbs 17, right? Whose mind is that? Jesus's. Who authored Holy Scripture? God the Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of Christ, whose minds are perfectly the same. Go to John 1.1 1, 1 quickly, please. John 1.1. 1, 1. Remember this. The entire Bible is the mind of Christ. So when you hear that fervency, it's not like, wow, he must have been having a bad day. No. <laughs> no. The entire Bible is his mind. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? Look at verse 14. And that Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Do you understand? When we read Proverbs 17, what are we reading? The Word. Whose mind is it? His. His, and it pre-existed any writing of any Holy Scripture. It's existed always, right? He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus Christ is saying yesterday, today, forever. Like, it's just His mind. It's just a revelation. It's not like, okay, the time has come. I guess I'll give you a little bit. No, 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 no. This mind, this mindset, if you want to call it that, His heart has always existed the same way, and it's been pristine that way. So whether we're reading Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glorious of the only gotten for the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen? Why do I bring this up? Go back to Proverbs 17.5, please, quickly. Go! 
Well, because some of you, I mean, I don't know. It's 11.08. Probably like, ooh, it's taking kind of long. Proverbs 17.5. I have a hard time reading this. I feel like flipping something over. This is the mind of Christ. Do you understand? We just read it in a, a larger display in the Beatitudes, right? He just kind of expanded it out for his disciples. But this is the same thing. It's his mind on display once again. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. This verse is the same mind that we noted in the Beatitudes in Luke 6. It's the same person, the same author, the same mind, the same everything. It's wholly consistent. Here's another verse to amplify Jesus' eternal word up here on the board. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. You know, before human history even began, Jesus despised hypocritical jackasses who mocked the poor. Does that make sense? Like, it's fundamentally opposed to who he is. Make sense? Yeah. If you understand that the word of God, that is Jesus Christ, stands forever, and that when you read your Bible, no matter which passage, Old Testament or New Testament, that you are reading the very mind of Christ, then you begin to understand how we glean this big picture perspective from the Bible that underpins every, quote, little thing in life. Just remember, I'll leave you with this to dwell on, it's the little things. It's the day-to-day things. What say you? of that person. Are you that person? Are you ever that person? Is anybody in here void of that thinking? Immune to that thinking? When you walk by someone that's dressed worse than you, Get a little sense of puffy upperness. Oh, I see you have the knockoff shoes. So sorry. Oh, you got your coach bag at the flea market? The one with the runny stuff? I won't say nothing. Oh, oh, you have that. Oh, what a, what an a. Adorable little hovel you have. Hovel's a small house. What an adorable little home you've got right here. Have you seen mine? The big one on the hill? We all do it. It's disgusting. We're all disgusting. Happy Sunday. Right when I'm ready to close. <laughs> right? The whole point, listen, folks, right? You're still laughing, that's good. It's not funny, but at least you get the point. You're not beaten down to a pulp. It's the little things. 
It's the little things. Think about the Beatitudes we just read. Think about Proverbs 17, 5, the grotesqueness and the fact that we all pretty much just agreed that we all have a little sliver of that at least in all of us. Amen? A lot to think about? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for truth that sets us free. We just ask for blessings as we take the things that we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.